welcome to Spirit of the Camino, a podcast about the unique and magical experience that is the Camino de Santiago. Join us on this adventure and discover the spirit of the Camino for yourself. Hello, and welcome back to the Spirit of the Camino podcast. I'm Nick, and I'm here with Wendy. And after 36 days, we have finished the Camino Ascent. We have. I'm feeling very accomplished. Yeah, it took us probably a little bit longer than we thought. We took three rest days, and there were just a few other occasions where the distances between the towns made it such that we either had to take a short day or a long day, and we basically took the short day almost every time. So we probably could have finished about a week or so earlier. But yeah, in the end, 36 days. Yeah, it's not a race. And, you know, I actually enjoyed the slow pace because it meant that in the afternoons, we still had time and energy, or speaking for myself, I still had the energy to do a bit of sightseeing and, you know, see what there was to see in the towns. And in most cases, there was something interesting to see. For sure. And so in the next episode, we're going to do a recap of the communion ascent and kind of bring together some of the threads of the things that we've been talking about. But for this episode, we're going to look at the region known as the Betas. And this is where we spent the last 10 days walking in the communion ascent, having crossed from the Alentejo, which was, of course, the big focus of this entire Camino. And I think the first thing to say, and we mentioned this a couple of episodes back, but just to reiterate that last year when we walked the Camino Portugues, the main uh, Portuguese Camino route from Lisbon to Santiago, we noticed a big difference in northern Portugal from the quote-unquote rest of Portugal. And we talked about that quite a bit and how northern Portugal was quite similar to Galicia in terms of culture and language and architecture and things like that. But for the rest of Portugal, we probably didn't really notice the difference between the regions. For example, when we went from the Ribatejo to the Beira Litoral, you know, we didn't notice a great difference, you know, all of a sudden as you cross from one region to the other, right? No, definitely not. And I wasn't aware of it. I couldn't tell you where that border is and which day we crossed it. It just wasn't something that was at the forefront of my mind at all. Whereas this time, probably because we had so much information specifically on the Alentejo, because we had this guide that we had downloaded, and so we were very aware, okay, this part is the Alentejo, so before that is going to be the Algarve, and after that is going to be the Betas, and so we just kind of organized it in our minds that way going into it. Yeah, I think that's true, but I also think that there was a clear demarcation between the regions in both of those cases, from the Algarve to the Alentejo, and then from the Alentejo to the Betas. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. And maybe we can get more, a little bit more into that in our next episode. Um, and so the Betas are made up of three sub-regions, the Beta Baixa, which is the lower Beta, the Beta Alta, which is the upper Beta, and the Beta Litoral, which is the Beta that's um, close to the coast. So, for example, Coimbra, which is a, a key highlight on the main Camino Portuguese, is in the Beta Litoral. But for this Camino and Camino Nascente, we walked mainly through the Beta Baixa, the lower Beta, and then a little bit in the Beta Alta, the upper Beta, um, just in the last couple of days of the Camino. And I think the first thing to say is that the entry into the Betas was absolutely spectacular. Yes. And so this sure. was one of the top natural sites of the entire Communion Ascent, uh, probably top three, I would say. And so, you know, coming from the Alentejo, and we love the Alentejo, and we walked for three weeks in the Alentejo, but it was quite similar 
throughout the, those three weeks. It's a bit samey, yeah. Day after day, you're kind of always walking through the same kind of landscape. And that landscape is these overgrown grasslands uh, with golden brown wheat stalks, and then basically three types of trees, which are olive trees, holm oak trees, and cork trees. And as we were walking in this final stage, leaving the Alentejo, we kind of noticed it was a bit different. Now, unfortunately, it rained quite a bit that morning, but we could tell suddenly it was a bit more hilly. We mm -hmm. had to walk up a little bit, and we had basically had been walking flat the entirety of the Alentejo. And also that we just noticed the, you know, it was becoming a little bit more forested and, and things like that. And soon we sort of discovered why when, once we came out of the forest area that we were in and suddenly had this view over the river Teju. So, Which, of course, is the border, uh, because Alan Teju means beyond the Teju. That's, you know, the name of the, the region. Um, so, yeah, the, that is the border that separates it from the Betas. Right. So the Teju River is the largest river in Portugal, in fact, in the entire Iberian Peninsula, and it runs through Lisbon. And we, as I think you've said uh, once or twice, we run past the Teju, alongside the Teju, on our running route in Lisbon. But of course, it was a completely different experience to see the Teju uh, in this area. And so basically, you have, you're coming from the south and you have the Alentejo in the south, and then you have the Betis uh, north of the River Teju. And what makes it really spectacular is that as you're crossing, and there's this one bridge that you have to cross, but to the left of that is what's called the Porch du Huda. And these are, port means gates, okay, but these are rock formations that rise up and create mountains on either side of the river at a point where the river becomes quite narrow because it's quite a wide river at, at many points, including in Lisbon. Uh, but you can see how it gets narrower and then you have uh, these rock formations rising up. So it's, it's kind of the pillars of Hercules separating um, Europe from North Africa in, in miniature, you know, where you have the narrow point of the Mediterranean at its western point. Uh, going out into the Atlantic. So it's kind of like that. You have these natural milestones that mark the boundary between these two places. And so suddenly you have these mountains, which in mm -hmm. the Alentejo you just don't have. No, no, not at all. And it was incredible greenery. There were olive trees, there were pine trees, and suddenly, yeah, it was just completely different from the golden brown feeling of the Alentejo. It was slightly unfortunate that one of the things you can do is take a boat ride uh, right up to these ports, right up to these gates. Um, but we were there on a Monday, and the guy who does the boats, it was his day off on the Monday uh, because it's connected with a restaurant, and restaurants are often closed on Mondays. So that was a little bit unfortunate. I mean, sometimes, you know, with timing, with days of the week, when you're on a Camino, you get lucky, and sometimes you don't. But it's one of those things that you can't plan around because you're just walking for days on end, and it's just a matter of, you know, whether you get lucky or not. Yeah, and we ran into that in Belmonte as well. We were considering taking a rest day there and because there are quite a few things to see, which we might talk about in a, a bit later, but we realized that if we took the rest day, it was going to be on a Monday and absolutely everything in the town was going to be closed, so there was no point in doing that. So yeah, it's just the luck of the draw, really. Um, but you have to spend your Monday somewhere. You do. And so it was a little bit unfortunate that we couldn't do this boat trip. Um, one thing that I decided to do and it was quite funny because as we were walking on the Alentejo side, as we were kind of descending down to the river and to the bridge, we could see a tower of a castle on the Betis side at the top of these gates, like at the top of the rock formations on the mountain on the other side. And we'd read that there was a castle. And so we could kind of see this, you know, way off in the distance. Anyway, and then we crossed the bridge and we went to the town of Villa Velle de Chodon which is not a particularly interesting town, but just has this spectacular location. And we were kind of done for the day, and it had been a reasonably uh, lengthy stage. 
and we were just kind of resting in the guest house that we were in. And then I was sort of writing up a little thing and talking about the castle saying, oh, you know, it would have been nice to visit this castle. And it was about 5.15 and I thought, you know what, I wonder how long it takes to get to this castle. <laughs> and then I kind of Google mapped it, but that went on the road the whole way, which is a kind of switchback road getting up to the castle, kind of taking a bit of a long way around. And I thought, no, there's got to be a, a marked path, like a hiking path, but not even a marked path, but at least a, some kind of trail that goes more directly up the mountain. Anyway, so the road length was about an hour 15 from where we were. And I thought, no, I've got to be able to do it quicker than that. And so I decided to go for it, even though, you know, typically I don't do, you know, 4K there and back, 8K total um you know, walks at the end of our daily walk on the Camino. Um, but I decided to do it and it was amazing up there. Uh, there's only one tower left from the castle and the castle is attributed to the Visigothic king Wamba, uh, which is perhaps not true. It's, I think, modern historians and archaeologists think it was a couple of centuries later than that. But in any case, it's an early medieval castle. And there's just this one tower left, but you're way up on top and you look down over the river and over all of the landscapes um, and it's just really incredible. Yeah, and I did not join you on that little excursion up to the castle. I did not have the energy for that. Um, but I'm really glad that you did it and took beautiful pictures because, yeah, it looks absolutely gorgeous. And who knows, maybe we'll go back there one day if we have friends or family visiting or if we just want to spend a weekend there and do this boat trip. I, you know, it's really a lovely place in Portugal to visit. And the good news is if you don't have the energy to scramble all the way up to this castle, you know, just on the regular Camino, as you're coming down on the Alentejo side, you get great views uh, of the river and of the gates. And so it's, you, know, you can't go wrong with this. Yeah. And so that was our introduction to the beta. So we got off to a really good start and then that just continued. Um, the next couple of days we were walking through pine forests and eucalyptus forest, which is funny because if you walk any Camino, you're probably used to seeing eucalyptus in Spain or Portugal. And last mm -hmm. year, certainly on the Camino Portugues, we saw a lot of eucalyptus. But in the Alentejo, there's none. No, maybe like the last day or two, we started to see, you know, it was kind of changing, like sometimes cork and then sometimes eucalyptus. I remember at one point we were actually walking on a path where on one side of us, we had the usual cork trees and the typical Alentation landscape. And then on the other side of the path was a small eucalyptus, eucalyptus forest or plantation. Um, and I was... At that point, I was already getting nostalgic about the Alentejo, even though we were still in it. I was like, oh man, I'm really going to miss this landscape because I loved it so much. And I was hoping that it wasn't just going to turn into all eucalyptus from there on out. But that did not happen. No, it didn't happen. It was quite interesting that the first couple of stages in the Betas up to Castelo Branco, we were in these, these pine forests with occasional eucalyptus plantations as well. And then after Castelo Branco, which is a fairly major town, it wasn't like that at all anymore. Mm -mm. Uh, and that was the interesting thing about the Betas was that the landscape just kept changing and changing. And that made it just an interesting contrast from the Alentejo. And what really marked the betas certainly towards the, the latter part, the last probably five, six days of this Camino were the mountains. Yes, um, which, you know, some people might not be excited about walking through the mountains because obviously that means you're having lots of elevation changes and having to climb up and then climb back down. So, you know, it's more strenuous, um, but I love walking in the mountains and um, I actually in some ways find it easier than walking on flat roads on asphalt um you know it's a lot better for my feet and i just really love being up in the mountains uh, the views were spectacular so yeah this has been really enjoyable for me 
Right. And so what was really interesting, again, was that we did probably three mountain stages where we climbed quite a bit, and they were in the last five or six days. and But all of them were different. You know, mm-hmm. the first one, which I think was the most spectacular, was coming out of Castello Novo, which we're going to talk about uh, shortly. Mm-hmm. And we just walked up, and it was just this boulder-strewn, Mm-hmm. landscape and it was just really unusual it's very hard to describe uh, we saw a lot of wild ferns green ferns just right on the side of the Camino and we hadn't seen that at all in mm-hmm. the entire Camino and it's amazing how you know you almost every day you sort of see something um, that you haven't seen before certainly in the Betas um, and then the second mountain that we climbed it was very forested Mm-hmm. And that was unusual because in the Alentejo, we basically weren't in forests at all. Uh, and so that was really interesting. It was really old growth kind of forest. It felt mm-hmm. like you're really in the thick of it rather than just a pine forest or eucalyptus plantation. And then the third time we were on a Roman road for part of the time and it was it wasn't really forested, but it was quite shrub-like, which doesn't sound very interesting, but it actually was interesting. There were a lot of wildflowers, and and it was just different again. And so, and the road itself was very interesting because it was a, a Roman road. So we're talking about, you know, a 2,000-year-old road, give or take. And we could tell immediately that it was a Roman road uh, because, you know, we used to be tour guides in the Roman Forum, and, it, you know, we're very familiar with with Roman roads, we've walked on lots of them, but this was the longest stretch of Roman road that I think we've ever walked on, with perhaps the exception of the uh, Appia Antica, which is in Rome itself or leads outside of the the outskirts of Rome. Right. So this was leaving Guarda, which is Portugal's highest city. It's just over a thousand meters above sea level. And so the initial uh, Camino from Guarda is this, this descent on this Roman road. And you're really walking on the Roman road on a switchback mountain Roman road, mm. not the straight, flat Roman road that everybody is kind of accustomed to. And we walked on this road for about five kilometers. Um, mm. And that was going down into this next village. And then, of course, we crossed the valley and then we had to go back up again. And then there were still traces of the Roman road on the way up, but not nearly as much as there had been on the way down. But that was a, another surprise on this Camino. And yeah, it was one of the great stretches of the Camino was on this Roman road. For sure. And that's, you know, a place that I would say would make a great day hike, for example, for someone who's not walking the Camino, but just wants to, you know, have a shorter hike in Portugal. I'm really surprised that it wasn't better signposted or promoted as such. We we did see like remnants of very old signboards or information boards that couldn't you couldn't make anything out anymore of what it would had said at one time. They were all faded. Um, but yeah, it seems like there hasn't been much done in recent years to promote it or to even tell people that they are walking on a Roman road because you might not know if you've never seen one before. And so that stage was also because we kind of in these mountain stages, we walked through a couple of different mountain ranges. Mm-hmm. But that stage in particular was the Serra de Estrela, mm-hmm. which is the largest mountain range in Portugal. And, you know, Portugal's not Switzerland. Um, <laughs> so, you know, the Serra de Estrela is not, you know, it's not the Alps. Um, but you can ski there. There is snow in the winter. You can. It's a little joke between us because you actually spent some time in the Serra de Estrela uh, mm-hmm. previously a few years ago. And you always talk about how we can ski there and, you know, how it's great. And but because we used to live in Switzerland, you know, I have pretty high expectations for my mountains. 
And so do I. And I, I totally admit that the Serra da Estrela is nothing like Switzerland, but they are the highest mountains in Portugal, and they are pretty beautiful mountains. Yeah, and for a Camino, it, it's brilliant. Yeah. You know, if you were, yeah, going on a, a hiking holiday and, yeah, you'll be used to the Himalayas or something like that, then the Serra da Estrela might not meet your expectations. But if you're on the Camino and suddenly you, you're going up and, and seeing these beautiful views, that's a bonus on Camino, right? Because it's not always what the Camino is about. No, and I think on the more popular Caminos, it's pretty rare, really, to have mountain scenery like that. And so that was a great highlight, was seeing all of these mountains, and it was just an interesting end to the Camino, having, you know, begun at the ocean and then gone through the Alentejo, you know, just to have this, you know, another new kind of aspect right at the end uh, was really great, because often when you come to the end of a long Camino, you know, you're... Um, a bit exhausted, mm-hmm. um, but when you see, you keep seeing new things and having new challenges and whatever, it rejuvenates you as you're going. And the other thing that we really enjoyed during part of this mountain part, which was also a surprise to us, it wasn't something we knew about at the beginning of the Camino, was that we came across the peak cherry season of the region, and this is the most famous cherry region in all of Portugal. Yeah, who knew? I had no idea. I honestly didn't know that cherries grew anywhere in Portugal or that it was cherry season right now, but I'm definitely going to pay attention and remember this from now on. And every time I eat cherries from this moment on, I am going to remember this Camino and those, that particular stretch of a few days. Right. So basically what the cherries did on this Camino was the equivalent of the figs on the previous Camino, yeah. uh, which is interesting because, of course, that was in the autumn and the, or in the early autumn and the figs were ripe then. And now we're in the spring and the cherries are ripe and they're just amazing. And we have seen fig trees, too. So, you know, if you walked this route in the autumn, then that might be something that you could experience is picking, you know, wild figs as you walk along the Camino. We're seeing them, but they're definitely not ripe. But the cherries are. And there are plantations, sometimes very large uh, you know, large scale farming of cherries. Then you also see, you know, smaller patches of in, you know, just a little a family-run farm, and then sometimes you see wild cherry trees just right on the trail, and you can just go nuts and pick as many as you want. We actually, we came across one, and I think your exact words were, I think we need a bag. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this was just a particular tree. It was, it was just on a kind of ridge just above the Camino, but it was a completely wild cherry tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't part of any kind of farm or plantation at all. It was kind of by itself as a cherry tree, and there were just all of these weeds right around it. We had to kind of trek our way to get to it yeah. uh, a little bit off the Camino, but that was also in the spirit of this Camino. We kind of um, hacked our way through weeds quite a bit. We did. We actually talked about that in an earlier episode about the very first time that it happened. And that was what, maybe day three or day four. And I made it out to be this, you know, this really big deal. Like, oh, we saw this arrow pointing this way, but we couldn't see a Camino there at all. It was just wildflowers. Well, that happened many, many times after that. (laughs) And we just got used to it. And yeah, we started calling it jungle hacking um, because we were, were, yeah, just hacking our way through all the grasses and the flowers um and so anyway we did that one more time and got to this cherry tree and it was it was a huge tree and all the cherries were super ripe and yeah you have a little bag that we use for grocery shopping it's one of those bags that kind of folds up into nothing but then you can fold it out and 
you know, previously when we'd pass wild cherry trees, we were just getting a handful, like、mm-hmm. whatever we could hold.、Mm-hmm. And this time we picked a hundred, at least a hundred more,、mm-hmm. uh, and just filled this bag. And it was around lunchtime, and we were about to stop for lunch anyway. And so then that was a nice dessert for us was to、uh, have all these cherries. It was, yes. And one of the villages that we passed through,、uh, which is called Alcongostu, I think. Alcongosta. Alcongosta、um, is the cherry capital of Portugal, and so we passed through right at peak season. And again, we had no idea that this was happening, and the timing was absolutely perfect. And there are just these crates of cherries just everywhere、mm-hmm. uh, because everybody's sort of moving them and maneuvering to sell them, and people come from Lisbon to buy them and then transport them to Lisbon and all this kind of stuff. And even in this village. The、uh, pavement that they have on the village is Calçada Portuguesa, the typical、uh, white and black mosaic cobblestone pavement of Portugal. And you know, within Calçada Portuguesa, what you can do in certain places is have patterns in the pavement that's appropriate to wherever you happen to be. And so, in Lisbon, for example,、um, you know, you see this all the time. And so, in this village, they have these cherry.、Uh, Almost cherry emojis. Basically, it's the same thing <laughs>、yeah. as the cherry emojis. It's two、yeah. cherries,、um, you know,、uh, together. And so they've built this into the pavement. And so there are. We saw four different times. We saw that the the pavement was in the form of these cherries. And so it's kind of what the the village is about. It's you know part of the identity of the village. A big part of the identity of the village. Definitely, yeah. And we we did read. In a couple of the resources that we had, that it it was known as the cherry capital, and then once we got there, we saw signs calling it the cherry capital.、Um, I don't know if that's like a self-proclaimed title. I guess it probably is, but it seems well deserved because yeah, it's certainly、uh, a big part of of you know what goes on there, but also in that other. In, In a wider area as well, it's not just in that village. No, not at all. And in one of the villages, a little bit further on, they have a cherry museum. Basically, it's an interpretation center for、right. for cherries. It wasn't open when we passed, but yeah, that's. I mean, that's that's what this place is about. You know,、and、cherries、mm-hmm. are a huge part of, of of you know the life, the sort of yearly cycle of these villages. And so, you know, they're proud of it. And they have all these signs, you know, about the cherries and about the process and everything. And so, it's cool to be able to learn about that and to participate in it if you happen to be walking right around late May、uh, in、mm-hmm. these particular villages. All right, and the final thing to talk about in the Beiras. Uh, which was again another surprise for us was that in the very northern part of the Beiras, you pass through some of what are called the aldeias historicas, which are the historic villages of this particular region. And the backstory to this is that last year, after the original lockdown in Portugal because of the pandemic, you know the country was opening up again, but international travel wasn't really on the agenda, and we were kind of looking for something to do in Portugal. And we noticed that there's this walking trail. Which links all of these historical villages, and there are twelve of them in total. And the walking trail is the GR22. And we sort of started looking at it, but the problem is that a lot of the villages are quite far apart, and the trail is more suited for cycling in terms of the distances. And I actually contacted somebody who works for the Aldeias Historicas and sort of said, "Can we actually do this in terms of accommodation if we're walking?" Like, are there places to stay between these villages, or is it possible? Because sometimes it's up to eighty kilometers between the villages. Right. And I said, "Can you do it without a tent?" And she replied and sort of said, "Well, not really.、Mm. Uh, it's you know, if you're cycling, it's much better." Yeah,、um, I think we might have even asked about camping too, and she said that that also wasn't recommended because. 
I don't remember the details, but perhaps you're not, you know, allowed to camp on private land. And so there weren't any places to do that either. So yeah, it's kind of strange that even though it's marked as one of these official GR routes, the Grand Duhota routes, um, which is supposed to be long distance hiking trails. I mean, that's what I always think of them as. And even on the signs, when you see the GR22 signs, you'll often see like a little hiking person with a hiking stick. Um, you know, there's that image there, but you actually can't do it hiking. You have to do it cycling. And it is apparently kind of a common thing uh, among cyclists to do. We, you know, heard that there are cyclists who are doing this route, but yeah, unfortunately it's not feasible, at least not to do the whole thing. Maybe we can look into it a bit further and see if we could do part of it and visit some of the Aldeas Historicas that we haven't seen, but we have also seen some of them already. Right. And so, of course, after having abandoned this idea last year to walk this GR22, we just forgot all about it. Uh And then it turned out as we were sort of coming to the end of this Camino, we thought, oh, hey, some of these uh, Aldeas Historicas are are right here. And so we stayed in and and passed three of them, uh, three of the 12. And Basically, the, the Grand Jota is kind of like a circle, but we, if you imagine that as a clock face, we kind of came in from the south. And so the first of these villages was at six o'clock on the clock face. And then we kind of just walked directly north and then happened to come across two of the other villages. And the first one that we passed was Castello Novo. And this, we really loved it. It was a very small village, but it was a stone village. It was very picturesque. Uh, the castle was in ruins, but there were two really nice towers and there were great views uh, from the towers. And it was very very untouristed yeah and there was basically one restaurant and there were a couple of places to stay and we were lucky that we called a few places and the last one left had a place for us a couple of the previous places were not open or were booked because i think it was the weekend as well and we were surprised you were surprised in particular that it wasn't more popular yeah definitely because it was beautiful and i yeah just kept thinking there's no one here. And I don't know if any of those places were booked, fully booked. I think they might have just all been closed. And we've, you know, because of the particular time when we're doing it, when the pandemic is going on, but the opening up is happening. A lot of places when I've called have said, oh, we're going to open in June. And we were walking in May. And, uh, you know, we at that time it was May. And so we could kind of just missed the opening of some of these um, you know, guest houses. And we managed to get one who normally requires a two night minimum stay, but because we were pilgrims, she agreed to let us stay there for just one night. Um, but normally Castello Novo is not one of the end of stage, uh, towns or villages. So it's not kind of recommended that you stay there. Um, which I'm also really surprised at that because I think it's a beautiful and fantastic place to stay. And I would recommend that people do that. Yeah, I think um, I, of course would too, but I think it's a distance thing. So we were coming a couple of days earlier. We were the the typical place to stay is a place called Soliedu or Solieda. Solieda. And, but there's nowhere to stay there except for the Bombados who were the firefighters and you called them and during the pandemic, they're not accepting anybody and there was just nowhere else to stay and we didn't know what to do. So we adjusted our stages and did a much shorter day that day and stayed quite a bit earlier than Solieda. And then that meant that the next day led us to Castello Novo. Whereas if you stay at Solieda, it's quite a short day. It'd only be off the top of my head, 10 kilometers to Castello Novo. So you'd typically go further. And so you'd, you wouldn't miss it because you'd pass through it, but you wouldn't Mm -hmm. stay there and have the chance to explore it a little bit more. Yeah. But I think that like Castello Novo is so much more of a draw than Solieda is that that whole 
things should just be reworked so that, you know, everyone, I mean, people can stay wherever they want, but that at least people know that, hey, there's something here to see and, you know, this might be a, a good place to stay. Because, yeah, there was no one there, no tourists. There is a tourist office and we went in there and got a stamp from the guy who was working there. And he was really, really friendly, really helpful and really curious about us and about our Camino. Um, but yeah, getting from talking to him, I definitely got the sense that they don't get very many visitors. Right. And that was probably why he was so nice and had so much time for us because he probably <laughs> hadn't really talked to anybody else that day. We yeah. did see one, uh, one tourist, I think, as we were leaving the castle and they were coming in, but that was it. And the only restaurant in town, they don't open for dinner except for the peak months of July, August, September. But we called, and because, again, we were pilgrims, they agreed to open for us at dinner, which was really, really nice. Yeah. And we really appreciated that. Sure. So Castellanova was a great introduction to these historical villages. I get the impression, given the other two that we visited, that Castellanova is, is a much smaller one than most of the other ones, perhaps, or one of the least known or least visited of the 12, let's say. Because a couple of the other ones are quite famous, and then mm -hmm. the other two that we visited were much larger, and it just had more tourist facilities. Yeah, the other two that we visited, I actually wouldn't think of them as villages now the, because they've grown uh, certainly in the past few hundred years. I mean, they have started out as a village, and so the historic center is still very small, um, but they actually, you know, are bigger than that now and have a lot more facilities, whereas Castello Novo had very few facilities. Right, so the second of these villages that we visited was Belmont, which is quite well known. And the main reason that it's well known is that there's a Jewish community there and there has been a Jewish community there for hundreds of years. I think after the expulsion of the Jews from Spain in 1492, a lot of them came to this area. And not just in Belmont, but also around in some other towns and villages around the area. But especially in Belmont, there was this sort of thriving Jewish community. Of course, in a general sense, um, that didn't last very long because very shortly after these Jews were accepted into Portugal, having been exiled from Spain. The Portuguese monarch Manuel I decided he wanted to marry the daughter of the king and queen of Spain, the so-called Catholic monarchs of Spain, Ferdinand and Isabella. And part of their uh, stipulation for this marriage was that he also got rid of all of the Jews in Portugal as well. But Manuel didn't want to do that. And so in the end, his solution was to essentially forcibly convert the Jews into Christians and they became the so-called new Christians. Mm -hmm. And then it's quite interesting to look at the history of new Christians and, and you can kind of see that, um, for example, some of these new Christians would put overtly Christian symbols on their uh, on the doorframe of their house, for example, to tr kind of try to show that they were good Christians. But in many cases, they were still secretly practicing Judaism in their in their houses. Yeah, and you can still see some of those symbols, too, because they were carved into the stone in the houses. And uh, so you still have those visible in Belmont and also in Trancoso, which is the next town that we'll talk about. And uh, we saw them in one of the smaller villages that we walked through as well. I can't remember the name of that one. Yeah, and so this is apparently quite a popular place for Jewish tourists to visit. Um, one of our Camino friends said that she was there once, not on Camino, but just there visiting herself, and she ran into a american jewish tour group who was staying at the same place that she was and um so you know they told her about their kind of itinerary and what they were doing but that was a big part of why they had come to portugal was to see some of these places like belmonte mm -hmm. and it does still have an active jewish community living there in belmonte as well they even have a radio station the um, yeah, the Jewish Portuguese radio station, which I believe you can visit and tour. Unfortunately, we were not able to really 
go inside any of the you know sightseeing locations because we arrived too late. Um, we had tried to get an early start and get there early enough that we would be able to visit some of the museums and things, but the hours that we saw listed had been reduced, and so they actually shut earlier than we thought they were going to, and so we missed out on that, which was a bit of a bummer. Yeah, in the case of the, the Jewish Museum, we missed out on it by five or ten minutes, so that was right. um, a little bit of a shame. But in any case, Belmonte was another really nice town. It has a castle as more or less all of these towns uh, do, and it also had a Church of Santiago as well, and so it had mm -hmm. yeah this nice historical core. And the final one of these historical villages was Trencoso, which is the end point of the communion ascent. And it's a little bit uh, embarrassing to admit that that wasn't a place that we had necessarily heard of before we started nope. planning this Camino, um, but it's really a fantastic place. Yeah, but I mean, I, I'd say that's true of all three of the historic villages that we visited on this Camino. I don't think... Probably I think something. Belmonte might have rung yeah, a bell, but yeah. Trancoso, no, and Castellanova certainly not. Yeah. Um, but Trancoso is really a, a worthy place to finish a Camino. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's not Santiago, um, <laughs> but you know, when you're having a Camino like this that just sort of finishes, you know, in a kind of random place that's not that close to Santiago or to Spain, uh, it might as well be a good place, and this one certainly was. And so Trancoso is surrounded, not entirely, but in large part by medieval walls. Mm -hmm. And that was quite rare uh, in terms of the communion ascent. We saw a lot of castles, and we'll talk about that in the next episode. Um, and we saw some, you know, gates that were once part of walls. But to have, you know, uh, quite a large stretch of, of medieval wall with towers and gates was really impressive. And so then that conserves the historic core inside the walls. Mm -hmm. And you can actually climb up on top of the walls as well, which we did, and that was good place to do a selfie to, to celebrate our arrival in Trancoso. And luckily we didn't fall off the walls um, <laughs> because there are no guardrails and that's become an issue in Portugal because a lot of these castles mm -hmm. and walls do not have guardrails and they're quite, um, it's quite easy to fall off basically. Yeah, actually previously on this Camino was at Viana do Alentejo and the castle there um, the guard told us you can no longer go up on the walls, like even though they haven't really blocked it off very well, like the, the steps are still there, but they said, don't go up on the walls. It's not allowed. And it's not allowed anywhere in Portugal anymore because, you know, there've been some accidents and even some deaths from people falling, uh, trying to do selfies. Not allowed where there aren't guardrails. Yeah. Where there aren't guardrails. Um, but that turned out not to be true yeah, because true. <laughs> several times after that we went up or saw other people going up to places without guardrails. But in any case, all is well that ends well. And so we finished the communion ascent in one of these historical villages and it was a great place to finish. It was. Um, it had a beautiful castle, uh, which, as you said, um, we'll go into more detail in, about castles. There are lots of them, but this one was one of our favorites. And uh, this time I did get to visit a couple of the museums as well, so I was really happy about that. They do have a Jewish culture museum um, in Trancozu as well, because originally there was also a significant Jewish community there, even though there is no longer... Uh, an active community, but they still have a, a synagogue that can function, you know, when people come and visit, uh, they can use the synagogue there. And uh, then there's also a, a right across the road from the Jewish Culture Interpretation Center, there's the Casa do, what is his name, Bandara? Mm -hmm. So, and I, this was another 
historical figure who I had not heard of before, but it was very interesting to learn about him. Uh, he's known as the Nostradamus of Portugal because he made these predictions about various, uh, you know, events that then occurred in history. Of course, you know, there are, there are lots of ways that you can interpret the words that he said, and I don't know in most cases what the actual words were, but people have said, oh, he predicted that uh, Portugal was going to fall under the rule of Castile, and then that it was going to regain its independence once again, and both of those things happened. Um, he and, was, And I pointed out, when you told me that, that <laughs> since Castile had been trying to take over Portugal for about 400 years before they actually did, mm-hmm. um, that wasn't such a bold prediction, but so be it. Yeah. Um, you know, I have no idea, like, how, whether he was, he really had this gift, you know, and, and could really see into the future or not. But I just thought it was a very interesting story. And because he was actually a shoemaker, he was, you know, from very humble origins, but then also was a poet. All of his uh, prophecies were in the form of poems. And so he wrote these books and then they, these books of poetry, but they were banned by the Inquisition, and he was kind of chased by the Inquisition as well, and had to go into hiding in this nearby village, and, um, you know, he's a very important figure in Trancoso, certainly, and perhaps for greater Portugal as well. I'll have to ask some of my Portuguese friends, you know, what they know about him and, and how important they think he is, but I thought it was really interesting to learn about. All right, so that's some of our impressions of the Beiras. So in the next episode, we will wrap up the communion ascent and also tell you how we are planning to continue to Santiago. Yes, because we finished the communion ascent, but we have not finished our communio. We are still pushing onwards and upwards. All right, so until next time, bon communio. And buen camino. Thanks for listening. For more great content about the Camino de Santiago, visit our website at spiritofthecamino.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Spirit of the Camino. Buen Camino!